0: Okay, Colossians chapter 4, Colossians chapter 4 verses 2 through 6. We're going to read this whole passage together even though we're only going to look at the last two verses this morning because we spent time looking at the previous verses last week. And here what we're talking about is 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 an inward reality and an outward reality. I love the balance of this passage because what Paul is going to talk about is how we conduct ourselves, particularly with those outside of our faith, but the way we do that is rooted in a private rhythm of prayer and how we engage in prayer as spiritual formation so that we can be the kind of formed people who are wise when we speak with those who are outside of our faith. And so he writes it like this in Colossians 4 verses 2 through 6. Devote yourselves to prayer and stay alert in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door to us for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. So that I may make it known as I should. And are the verses we're going to focus in on this morning. Act wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. Now, it's important to me that we take a moment to acknowledge... That if we are Bible Belt evangelicals, we have a pair of glasses on whenever we read passages such as this because we've been taught what that is supposed to mean. But remember, anytime anyone says the Bible clearly says, I hope that now you've got this discernible translator that's on your ears. So when you hear the phrase the Bible clearly says, you recognize that what you're hearing is, my interpretation of the Bible is obvious and you should clearly agree with it. And so we've had a lot of that kind of teaching and whenever we hear words that are common like prayer or being know how to answer those outside of the faith, faith, part of the problem with us is that we were taught to read the Bible as if it was written to evangelicals who were into the whole born again by saying the ABC prayer, right? But that is not who it's written to. In fact, the way we've codified our interactions with those outside of our faith are actually very different than the posture of christians in the first century and frankly i would say it's very different in the way jesus postured himself with those outside of the faith so we have to take off those glasses and not just hear evangelical ease and even cuz most of us speak evangelical jellyfish in here but we have to set that aside and, and and read it for what's being said in the context in which it's being spoken. And I actually think that some of the evangelical understanding actually creates a hindrance to us that moves us further away from the gospel rather than closer to the gospel of the living Christ. And I know that's a bold statement, and so I'm going to share with you why I feel that way this morning, of course, as you know. We are not a place of indoctrination. You feel free to wrestle with it, disagree with it. But if you disagree vehemently, then send me a text and ask me for a Reuben and we will talk in more detail. So, as we said last week, these exhortations of prayer and how we relate to outsiders are not two different topics. These topics, the way Paul has introduced this idea, they are inextricably connected together. Private prayer prepares us for public ministry. uh, I'm sorry, for public mercy. Intercession prepares us for ministry. Contemplation prepares us for service. Inward intentionality cultivates outward intentionality. Or we may just say say it simply this way, awareness begets awareness. So if you begin your day in confusion and distance from reality, it's very likely you will navigate that next 24 hours in confusion and distance from reality. But if you work in a rhythm that allows you to be grounded in the highest reality, which is the kingdom of God and who you are in Christ and who Christ is in you, then if you will take time to ground yourself in awareness of that reality. It increases the likelihood that you're going to live the next 24 hours with intentionality and being proactively aware of God's grace and presence in all of your challenges and encounters. That's why we're talking about the connection to a life of prayer and how that has an impact on the way we carry ourselves when we leave the prayer closet. Now, notice what he says here. He makes a request one of the things that I want to encourage you to think through is the way in which prayer is taught, particularly in our evangelical tradition, because in the scripture, I think that there are two very crystal clear purposes for prayer. I actually think one is emphasized over the other, and the one that's most emphasized is the one that we most neglect in our tradition. But there are two ways of understanding prayer Number one, prayer is a piece of communication where in some mysterious way we are partnering with the divine, partnering with the almighty, in which our prayers are are focused on asking him to be at work in the world. So, so we might pray a prayer of intercession or so forth, or when we think about being a prayer warrior or so forth, that's typically what we mean by that is the kind of prayer that's intended to be us speaking our heart, our intention, our faith out loud and asking God to do something active in the world. And, uh, I think that that is very much a means of prayer, but even that kind of prayer is not about getting stuff done. It's about being a partner with the almighty that's what that's about. The, the idea that God will only show his grace in the world if the saints remember to pray seems a little bit of a stretch to me. So then why are we involved in the process? Because the gospel is radically relational. And so we enter into this relational partnership with God. That's when we pour out the burdens of our heart, but it's also so relational that the spirit might move us to participate in being the means through which God brings answers to the prayer and works in the world. So that's, that's one thing. And we we tried to kind of emphasize that this time last year when we did the how to pray series. So I won't, that's all I'll say about that. But the other use of prayer is for intimacy with God and spiritual formation. Spiritual formation, prayer is one of the primary tools and has historically been one of the primary tools through which believers were spiritually formed around the revelation of Jesus and the grace of God. And unfortunately, we, again, we have to remember that we can tend to be very myopically, chronologically prejudiced and, and not all. most Christians haven't lived as easy as lives as we've, we've lived. And when we think about discipleship, we think about downloading a lecture series on YouTube and reading a new book or maybe meeting with someone where you fill in the blank answers and you ask accountability questions. And again, I'm not belittling that, that I, I've done all of those things and those have been useful at various seasons of my life. But the truth is that kind of discipleship is very cerebral and it's almost as though we think information is the same thing as revelation and it's not. It's almost as if we think the same thing, uh, we think that behavior modification to external ideas is the same thing as an inward transformation that leads to liberty, and it's not the same thing. And so discipleship, actually the greatest tool of discipleship that we have at our disposal isn't YouTube, isn't books, it's actually this gift called prayer. So we spend time learning how to become to grow in our skill of prayer so that we can be spiritually formed. That is one of the primary, and I would argue the most important part of prayer, is whether or not you're engaging in spiritual formation. Because if you're anything like me, prayer is just about getting through the list and asking God to do things... Uh, on, the, on the most altruistic end asking God to do things to alleviate other people's suffering most of the time for me is asking to do things that will make my life more convenient and the people around me easier to live with and so that's why I engage in my passion for prayer thank you for that soul laughter back there I appreciate that uh, boy that landed flat didn't it um, but nonetheless uh, uh, prayer to be spiritual formed that is the great adventure of spiritual intimacy my friends Prayer should be our primary means of being spiritually reformed, and I think that that's the only kind of prayer that has an impact on who we are amongst the, quote, outsiders. So he says, he acknowledges here, first thing he asked them to pray for is that God would open the door so that we could speak the message. So here's that example of the way in which prayer is asking God to do things in the world. So you're asked, so the request is open the door. What does that mean? Did he mean that there was a location where he wanted to speak, but the doors were locked and he was asking God to bust those open? I don't know, maybe. Uh, It's a possibility, but more than likely he means this metaphorically. He's recognizing that the truth of this revelation is so powerfully resisted by the human heart that has so been discipled into isolation and rejection and judgment and shame because of the fruit of the knowledge of tree of good and evil. It does to us what it did to Adam and Eve. We run from God. We hide from one another. We clothe ourselves. We pretend we're fake. We we, we have this kernel of shame deep inside that we don't want anyone else. to see, and so then we get agitated, and we blame one another. Oh, it wasn't me; it was her. Oh, it wasn't me; it was the snake. I mean, we do all of these things. We play out this drama all the time, and so, 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 what happens is, is that when if we start to learn to engage in prayer, and we allow that transformation to happen. At that level, that's what allows us to begin to walk the doors that God opens. But what we recognize is because of the resistance of the human heart, there's a work of the spirit that has to be done. He is by far the best evangelist. Why? Because he observes more than the outward behavior. He knows why the our friends that are in our life that we're concerned about, he knows exactly why they wept the last time they wept in private. He, He knows what they're really afraid of, and the deep-seated fear that is driving their actions, even at an unconscious level, God made them. He knows their hearts. He knows their thoughts. And so we need the spirit to overcome that resistance that comes from a shame-based performance identity, which we're all discipled in as human beings in modern America. That has to be overcome, and it it can't always be overcome by our clever arguments and discussions. We need the spirit to be at work before we can be effective in our work. So he is really asking God to do what only God can do, what Paul cannot do. But what Paul can do is if God opens the door to someone's heart, then he can speak the word of encouragement, the gospel, reconciliation and it will be effective. So there's an acknowledgement. Of course we pray by asking God to be at work in the world. It's the way we focus our intentionality by speaking out that and making those requests. It's just that that's not the totality of prayer. That's that external outward work of prayer, but we've got to allow it to be moved deep down within the soul of who we are. And so he says that the result of of, of, of a rhythm of prayer is this. Verse 5. After praying, we ask that you, we, 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 Paul says, you should act wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. All right, let's look at my time. Doing pretty good. Indian tacos are in sale today, so I'm mindful of the time this morning. one thing that I want you to consider is think about how you read the word outsider. That is really, really important because I think that we should let the context of the book we've been studying define what Paul means by outsider. Most of us, unfortunately, if we were discipled in an evangelical Bible church, they defined for us what outsider meant. And the truth is a lot of the times we were erroneously concluded an outsider meant, number one, anyone who didn't call themselves a Christian. That made them an outsider. And so there was this degree of separation. But the truth is that wasn't enough for my group. It was also, well, what do those Christians think about the Holy Spirit? Oh, that's different than us. Now they're on the outside. How do those Christians, what do they think about their worship services? Are they controlled in liturgy or are they spontaneous with the wildness of the spirit? Oh, well, they don't do kind of your Pentecostal thing. Oh, okay. Now they're on the outside. And, and we would go on and on. What do they think about drinking alcohol? What do they think about, um, you know, listening to secular music? Not the easy ones. Prince definitely got to go, but. That young Mr. Michael Jackson has some pretty snappy tunes. Is that okay? I mean, we would, we would go through all of these things. We had Sunday school classes about what music was appropriate and inappropriate to listen to. Do you guys remember that in the 80s when people were playing backwards, records backwards? And you're like, you didn't hear anything. Then they tell you what you're looking for and then you could hear it. Well, it just sounded like jumble. Wait, play it again. I hear it. Cue your mother. You know, it's like, oh my goodness, I can't keep listening to Twisted Sister. I'm going to want to murder someone. I mean, we we would do all these kinds of things all the time. And so then the outsiders, it just gets more and more narrow. And then all of a sudden, how we defined outsider was used to justify how we limited love. And these days... I'm trying to let the limitless nature of love to define how I understand, quote, the outsider. I think it's time to move it in the opposite direction. And so here, an outsider is not someone who hasn't prayed the prayer of salvation. Here, an outsider is those who are living in ignorance of the revelation, Christ in you. What makes them an outsider is they've yet to enter into stepping into that place of revelation. Now, what that means is this, according to that term, an outsider may be completely irreligious, but not for our context. In that, in this way the term is used, it could be a so-called Christian that's never been liberated by the, by the revelation of Christ in you, the hope of glory. They've been driven by fear, And if you don't become a Christian, then you'll go to hell. Well, if you don't do this, then God won't bless you. Well, if you don't read the Bible this way, if you don't pray this way, if you don't not dance this way, all these things, they, if your Christianity, if, if fear went away and your spirituality no longer made sense, can I gently with all love say you are doing it wrong? Because the liberating message of the gospel is this, Perfect love, cast out fear. He who fears has not been perfected in love. Thank you, Patsy. Right on, I'm right there with you, sister. That's Fear is not what drives us. It's supposed to be love. So you'll know either from your own experience or the experience of others, there are a lot of people that call themselves Christians that just live in lives dominated by fear and judgment and shame. That is not what I'm talking about. In fact, It was a big revelation to me because I wanted to grow up and do something heroic, like be a missionary among the heathen that wanted to kill me as I spoke the words of Christ, maybe have power encounters with demons as I cast them out of people and trees or whatever. And then I realized God has given me the privilege of being doing mission work among Christians. And, And why do I have that passion? Because I was a Christian who was completely lost to the love of God and lost to the grace of God. And that religion had no power for me. But in the context of that religion, I was able to stumble upon this revelation Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so, my point is the outsiders might even be people we go to church with because they still haven't been liberated by the true nature of the love of God. That liberates us rather than living a life of conformity to an outer standard of denominational Christianity. So that's what we're talking about when it says outsiders. It's just those who aren't enjoying the revelation of Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then he says to those people, you just need to act wisely. Now, this word to act, it means about it means how you walk, it means live your life in such a way that it's obvious that the transformation of the grace of God and the love of Christ is present in your life. It all has to do with the way in which we're living. It is not about pre-learning a script that isn't actually ourselves at all, but it contains all the right answers that you've been told the outsider, unbelieving heathen needs to hear. And so now it's like when we talk about our faith, we stop being human beings. We're like completely different people and we're using language that isn't intuitive to us or anything, that's not what this is about. This is about whether or not your life speaks with integrity about the transformation and the liberty you've encountered through the love of God and the grace of Christ. And so, so, so as we act, it means to walk. To the Hebrews, it had an ethical element to it. It means the way I conduct my life. In other words, it is my way of living. Now, this is really important, my friends. The success of your bearing witness to Christ is rooted in your way of living, not in the theology that you know. Your su- success in being a witness is not powered by your ability to answer answer the objections of Muslims and um, Mormons and whatever else. You know, you have those books, how to answer a Jehovah's Witness, how to answer a Muslim, how to blah, 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 blah. And that's great. If that floats your boat, I'm not trying to condemn that. I I really got jazzed with those books at some part of my journey, too. But that's not the power of your witness. If it doesn't flow from your way of living, then it's just a sales pitch and hypocrisy. And there won't be any power in it. Our witness toward outsiders has power because of the way that we live our lives. So therefore, if we are living a rhythm of prayer that allows us to tap into a conscious reality of life in union with God, there's going to be power behind that witness, even if you, quote, don't know how to answer all the objections from your Muslim friends or whatever thing that you're reading. It's a way of living. And when it says wisely, what I love about this is that it's talking about skill, It's literally talking about growing in skill in the art of using wisdom. So what Paul is saying as we break this down is he's saying, first of all, conduct your life with the art of using wisdom. And again, this is where we have to say, of course we believe in equality of worth and contribution. But the truth of the matter is, the reason why there's standards in Christian community and standards for Christian leadership and standards for Christian education is this, we're not all in the same place in our growth of wisdom. And when my wisdom is immature, it's it's a season for me to be quiet in the mouth, open my ears and listen to those who have grown on this journey of maturity Why? Because they're better than me? No. Because they're more godly than me? No. Because they're blessed by the spirit than me? No. They've just hung around and done this long enough that they know where you can slip off the edge of the cliff if you're not careful. They've got more experience and I'm supposed to humble myself and learn from them. I'm not saying they can't learn from me, but it is really important that I honor those who have grown further than me in the skill of wisdom in living. I wanna learn from those People. And so conduct your life with the art of using wisdom. This means it's something you can choose to accelerate or you can choose to create obstacles for your growth and wisdom based on the consistent choices that we make. And so, and so then my, my wiser choices aren't about getting more loved by God, but because I want to enjoy the happy benefits that come from a life that bears the fruit of living skillfully in the art of wisdom. And so that's, that's what I am asking the spirit to do. And he says then to make the most of the time, this word translated, make the most simply means to buy up or to ransom figuratively. It means to rescue that time from loss. Make the most of your time. And he's talking about with outsiders who were outsiders, those without the revelation of reconciliation, whether they're religious or irreligious, they can still land in that category. Rescue the time. So what Paul is essentially communicating is this rescue, the time spent with those without grace by conducting your life. According to wisdom. And the way you conduct your life according to wisdom is it grows out of a rhythm of prayer as spiritual formation. Do You see how all of this now begins to blend together and we see why these ideas and commands can't be separated. In other words, we redeem our time with those outside of our faith, not by being religious, but by being wise. That's really, really critical to let that sink down into our hearts. We redeem the time with those outside of our faith, not by being religious, but by being wise. And then Paul goes on to even more articulate what he means by wise. Because I once would have thought wise living means knowing right and wrong and being very forceful in the way I condemned those I perceived as doing wrong. And then I was told, hey, that's not hypocritical already. That's not judgment. That's how Christians love. What? Well, you know, God's love is higher than our love. So we're going to define it in a way that it's actually worse kind of love than what human beings actually give to one another. We're going to love others by letting them know how wrong they are and how much they're going to one day suffer while we have it good in our big, big house where we play football in heaven. That's, That's how we do this thing. Well, Paul defines it a little bit more specifically than that in the next verse. Let your speech always class, please repeat after me the word always. Let your speech always be gracious. Seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer so that you may know how you should answer each person. Now, first of all, I really like what Paul says. He could have said, so you know how to answer each question. But you know what we do with that? We stop seeing people, we stop seeing human beings, and we see categories. I'll put them in this category of ideology, and then I will learn how their ideology might bring contradiction or conflict with my faith, and I'll learn how to bone up on the answers to how I can win that argument. But he didn't say, so that you know how to answer each question. What did he say? That you know how to answer each person. This is why you can throw away your codified explanations of how you give the sales pitch of salvation to a one size fits all audience. Won't work. That's what God blesses. Why? Because if Adam's in line for salvation and I am in his life, what God is doing is not, it doesn't just have to do with what God's doing in Adam, but in me. And it requires me to stand before Adam as another broken human being, equally with him on this journey and know how to answer him by entering into his pain and saying, brother, here's what knowing Jesus has done for my travel of pain that you're going through. And then I answer that person. Now that person might have a completely different need that will access, that will be the access point to the message of grace. I might meet my friend, Rachel. She has a completely different set of circumstances. She has a different set of suffering. She has a different set of trauma than Adam. They don't need the same answer. They just need relationship. Be here in their lives. And with that, moving with the spirit because we're creating a rhythm of life. We're learning how to be more conscious of how the spirit's leading even when we're outside of the prayer closet. And I can be present with Rachel and I can hear the wound where the spirit is applying the healing balm of the gospel. Not with formulaic, one-size-fits-all answers, but because I'm entering into her narrative. That's what it means to be a witness not answer every question, but being willing to answer every person. And that takes a different approach. That takes a more relational approach. He says to speak graciously. Speech means, um, that's the means through which we externally express what's internally in our hearts. And he says it needs to be gracious and it needs to be seasoned with salt. This idea of gracious in the original word, it simply means grace or kindness. Class, please repeat after me, kindness. Make humans kind again, Lord. That is our prayer. And then it says to be seasoned. That word season simply means to make ready, to season as in food. You all get that. I mean, it's it's me grabbing my favorite uh, blood pressure medication, the salt and getting it on and making make sure it brings out the right flavors. And, and, and seasoning is a skill, my friends. I have a McCormick seasoning that I would die for. Uh, I swear by it. Uh, it has ruined me for all other steaks now that I've perfected the marinara sauce, the marinade that I make, not marinara, sorry that's another genre of food altogether the marinade in which I soaked those steaks. Well, I got some great cuts of meat the other night and I opened the cabinet and there was no McCormick seasoning, the one that I like. We both panicked, Jen and I, because now we're old and it takes a lot to get us out of the house once we're there. And so, and in this case, farmer's market was closed. So I was gonna to have to go all the way into the city into Walmart to get it. So we found online like a mock recipe of, of the seasoning and I was pretty excited as we were mixing it together and smelling it put it on the steaks I bit into that steak and just my soul deflated it just wasn't the same thing so some seasoning is superior to others and you only acquire that skill by seasoning and tasting the food seasoning and tasting the food so you're very well aware of what you're serving and whether or not it's desirable That's what it means to season something. Seasoning is that which makes what you are serving delicious and desirable. If our message is not desirable, we may be disobeying Paul's instructions to see to it that we have seasoned our speech with graciousness, which is what he says right here. If our truth cannot be communicated in kindness, then we must be cautious because there's a very good chance that it is not empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, one thing I have learned in my sojourn in evangelicalism, is there are a few words that we really like and there are words we don't like. Amazingly, one of the words evangelicals don't like is kind. I've had conversations where people get defensive about it. Because they see kind as weakness and meekness and compromise. No, kindness is the most powerful force on earth because it is God's love made tangible. That's all that kindness is. God's love where you can see it, taste it, or touch it. That's what kindness is. Kindness does not mean compromise, it means kindness. Kindness does not mean conservative, it means kindness. Kindness does not mean progressive, it means kindness. Kindness does not mean religious, it means kindness. That's all that it means. And any truth, even a hard truth, can be seasoned with kindness if we're willing to take the longer road of cooperating with the Holy Spirit rather than our ideological agenda. But this is why we've got to repent for the idolatry of our ideologies because they are a much harsher taskmaster and they don't require kindness to season your speech when you're representing them. But you know what? The Almighty God does require that of us. So as we get ready to close, how do we cultivate this kind of wisdom? There are only two ways, my friends. And you have to utilize both. You can't opt for one because it seems easier than the other. There are two ways this kindness gets worked out in your life. Number one is through revelation. That's what we pray for. I hope that's happening for someone right now. As I'm speaking, as we're meditating on scripture, the Holy Spirit moves in our hearts, opens up an understanding, and we have revelation. Maybe it happens when we're singing a worship song and there's a lyric that goes into our hearts. We have a moment of revelation. These things happen on a consistent basis, and we should be watching for them and rejoicing in them because they will lead to an increase in kindness and wisdom. But there's only one other way. By revelation and by experiencing the consequences of unwise living. So if you pray for God to give you wisdom, get ready for being unwise and experiencing the consequences. Because unfortunately, that's how we get it. Why fight that, my friends? Why fight it? Why get uptight about it? Why do we keep expecting sinless perfection for ourselves when in the grace of God, even our sinful unwise choices will get turned around in a redemptive story because of the grace of God that's actively at work in our lives. So we just have to recognize that's how it's gonna come. But if you, not, if you are not aware of how the consequences of your unwise living has hindered your growth in the grace of God, if you are not aware of the way in which the consequences of your unwise living have harmed people, they have harmed your partner, they have harmed your children, they have harmed your friends, they have harmed anyone that you chose to indulge any lustful indulgence with in a way that they had to be used in order for that to be satisfied. What is this? I thought you were grace guy and you're making us all feel bad. That is part of grace. You can't understand grace until you recognize you don't just theoretically need it, my friends. You all really need it. And I understand that you all, I mean, I've, you've got one person talking to you. I understand that 100 and people, 150 people could stand up and say, Artie Favre, you need it too. To which I would say, Yes, I do. Not theoretically, I really need to be sustained by the kindness and love of God that's working transformation in the deepest parts of who I am so that I can be healed and whole so that when I'm present in the world, it is not through toxic vengeance and bitterness. It is through a presence that has been healed and made whole because of the kindness and the transforming grace of the living Christ. That's how we're present. That's the only two ways it happens, and so, as I wrote this, I couldn't help but think of a piece of dialogue. I think this may be the first time I've ever put a screenplay in my sermon notes, and it could get me in trouble, so indulge me for 60 seconds, we're about to come to a close, but I have to say this, it has probably been 20 years since I've watched this movie. Um, I don't know for certain, but I'm guessing that there are objectionable elements in it, particularly if you, if we are a good Bible Belt Christian, you, you know, there may be some words that we just don't like to hear or whatever. Um, that may be there. So you're adults, watch it at your own delight or peril, whichever it may be. Uh, the But it's been 20 years. So I don't know. The other thing is, is it's frankly, I just have learned that I just watch movies with such innocent eyes that some of that stuff just goes over my head. So. I am sorry if you have not reached that place of innocence, so you may need some boundaries, but the movie's called The Big Kahuna. And it presents, I think it was made from a stage play, and on the surface you think The Big Kahuna is about a big account that these three salesmen are looking to secure. But as the play and the movie goes on, you realize, oh, The Big Kahuna is, this is conversations about God. And there are three principal characters, uh, Larry, Phil, and Bob, very generic names—Larry, Phil, and Bob. Not that your name's generic if your name be those. Jeez. I now apologize if I offended anyone by sound, making any name sound common, um, and I will be chastised in the armory in two days. Um, well, oh, Phil, Bob, and Larry. And, and the way they make, the way they set this movie up is brilliant. Um, there's one character, Larry, who basically embodies the lifestyle of the younger prodigal son. And then the younger guy who's in his 20s, who is Bob, he plays the version of the older prodigal son. And again, no offense, it's just in the script, he is a very zealous Southern Baptist young man trying to make his way in business. And then there is uh, Phil, who's kind of in the middle. He kind of stands in as the father's wisdom and grace, but he also is just simply the voice of, of grace and kindness in the midst of these other two characters who represent two different extreme ways of pursuing life, one very religious, one irreligious, and then there's wisdom and grace here in the middle in the character of Phil played by the wonderful Danny DeVito. And so, so along the movie, they played three uh, uh, salesmen for a lubricant company selling to, uh, to um, uh, companies that uh, in the oil and gas industry. And they're there on a convention to nab one particular uh, client. And it so happens that client really likes this young, zealous Southern Baptist guy. So they're all excited, they're team players, they're setting him up to make the big pitch, make the big sell. But because of his religious zeal, when the client brings up death, he feels compelled that he needs to turn it to a conversation about the gospel. Now, if you haven't grown up in Bible Belt, Oklahoma, you may not understand that. But if you walk away from a conversation that brought up death and you didn't say anything about your faith, God pretty much reserved the lowest place in heaven for you because you've got blood on your hands. You didn't awkwardly and inappropriately start talking religion. Then God was going to be unhappy with you. That is what I felt. That's what most of us felt. So, of course, he has a religious talk and never gets around to the pitch. Then they have a confrontation toward the end of the movie in the hotel room in which the uh, Southern Baptist guy and the center guy have a physical altercation that then has to be separated by Phil. Larry leaves the room infuriated. Bob, the Southern Baptist guy is still there with Phil and then they have this dialogue and Phil says "The Danny DeVito character, I don't remember who played Bob. And I don't want to say who played Larry because it's a disgraced actor. So all you're getting from me is Danny DeVito this morning. He says, talking about Larry, who just left the room, but Larry matters very much. The reason being I can trust him. I know that I can trust him. He's honest to which Bob fairly says, is he honest or is he just blunt? He is honest, Bob. He is blunt as well. That sometimes is part of being honest because there are a lot of people who are blunt but not honest. Larry is not one of those. Larry is an honest man. You too are an honest man, Bob. I believe that somewhere deep inside of you is something that strives to be honest. The question that you have to ask yourself is, has it touched the whole of My life. Now, what I would intersect into the insert to the dialogue because this is one of those movies that became a window to my soul that the spirit opened up is, has your love for Jesus touched the totality of your life? Has it touched the whole of your life? And Bob says to Phil, What does that mean? And then Phil says, That means that you preaching Jesus is no different than Larry or anybody else preaching lubricants. It doesn't matter whether you're selling Jesus or Buddha or civil rights or how to make money in real estate with no money down. That doesn't make you a human being. It makes you a marketing rep. If you want to talk to somebody honestly, as a human being, ask him about his kids. Find out about what his dreams are just to find out and for no other reason. Because as soon as you lay your hands on a conversation to steer it, it's not a conversation anymore. It's a pitch. And you're not a human being. You're a marketing Boy, at this point, I was immediately reduced to tears, close to getting on my knees to utter prayers of repentance because the spirit breathed on this dialogue in a profound way into my young, zealous heart at the time. But it goes on to continue in a way that I've appreciated the last half of their conversation. Bob then says, forgive me if I respectfully disagree. Phil says, well, we were talking before about character. You were asking me about character. What we, were, we were speaking of faces, but the question is much deeper than that. The question is, do you have any character at all? And if you want my honest opinion, Bob, you do not. For the simple reason that you don't regret anything yet. Now, as I watched the movie 20 years ago, I was deeply offended by that line, as was Bob. Bob says what I was thinking. You're saying I won't have any character unless I do something I regret? No, Bob. I'm saying you've already done plenty of things to regret. You just don't know what they are. It's when you discover them. When you see the folly in something you've done and you wish you had to do it over, but you know that you can't because it's too late. So you pick that thing up and you carry it with you to remind you that life goes on the world will spin without you. You really don't matter that much in the end. Then you will attain character because honestly, honesty will reach out from inside and tattoo itself all across your face. Until that day, however, you can't expect to go past a certain. So my question as we close is this, are you so intuitively aware of the ways that the grace of God has redeemed you and rescued you and formed you that honesty has reached out from inside and tattooed itself all across your face? Because my friends, when it does, you don't need to take one other Sunday school class about how to witness for Jesus. Because your life will be a living epistle for all to read that they might find healing for the broken places in them as well. But you've got to go in that journey. You've got to quit denying your shame, pain, and hurt. You've got to acknowledge it and let God be right here in the midst of that chaos. Because if you don't, you won't, you'll live your whole life and never discover what it's like to be a human being. It's all the blood, sweat and tears, the uh, the lust, the anger, the kindness, the honesty, the lying. It's all part of the experience, my friends. And we don't just bring God into the sanitized parts. We invite him into the darker places. We invite him into the chaos so that we can really be healed. This is liberated living. Liberated living always produces graciousness of speech. And you don't have to memorize pitches to get there because it flows from who you are, not from what you've memorized. Well, then how can we grow from being a marketing rep to being an honest, liberated human being from a conscious who lives from a conscious awareness of being transformed by the ever flowing grace of the living Christ? How do we do that? We pray. We cultivate a life of prayer that is guarded by the practice of thanksgiving. Would you all stand with me? As so we get ready to close and the worship team comes up. just want to close by asking you to close your eyes as we get ready to take common communion together. And I shared these ideas with you last week, but we didn't practice them, and I just want to take two minutes to practice them. It's a little model of prayer that doesn't have the same religious jargon of other models of prayer that you might want to consider for this next season of your life. I have found it to ground me in a deeper sense of authenticity and a more deeply conscious awareness of God's presence. It might not work that way for you, but try it for the month of September. So let's just walk through these elements if you'll close your eyes. Element number one is gratitude. Begin every day practicing Thanksgiving. So just take just a few seconds to do that. And I, what I like to do in my time of prayer is I begin with what I can see. So for example, I don't know if you're aware, but about 6.45 this morning, the weather was perfect for Southern Oklahoma. And I sat out there and I was able to say, God, thank you for this breeze. Thank you for this atmosphere that's in ways that I don't understand sustained by your love and your grace. God, I thank you for the people in my life who are willing to engage in friendship with me because I know I am not an easy friend to have. Thank you for my wife and the journey that we've been on to move from those early times of zeal and infatuation to authenticity and real love. I thank you for the people that know the real me and not just my public persona or the person I project out of my insecurity. Thank you. Wakefulness, envision the day ahead. Ask the spirit to keep you awake when you're tempted to drift away through self-centeredness, anxiety, anger, or despair. Perhaps reflect on moments you may have fallen asleep the previous day. Lord, pray for the week ahead that we would all be awake. And we ask that because we know it's very easy to be lulled asleep. Keep us awake today, this week, Lord. Keep us awake this afternoon. And by that we mean keep us present in the moment that we're experiencing while we're experiencing it. Healing, Lord, I pray that you would bring healing to the people who suffer. I think of specific names that I'm going to hold back out of privacy, but I'm asking God healing there, healing for the body, healing for the mind. For this people, I pray for healing for their damaged relationships. I pray for the places in my own soul that I'm conscious of that need healing. And then awareness, ask the spirit to keep you aware of the signs of his presence. Yes, Lord, we want our eyes open to the signs. Make us aware when the grace of God, the beauty of Christ, and the power of your love is very present around us, but we're just missing it. Help us see the signs. Help us hear the encouragement from the friend who happens to call out of the blue. Help us to see the tangible expression of grace from a weary mother in the grocery store with her three children, who's chosen to exercise patience in the midst of their childlessness. Make us aware. And Lord, we close this by asking you to please make us useful. Cause us to serve someone today in a very real and tangible way. And when we're serving, please help us to be awake to the fact that we're serving so that we can not just be present to them, but also be present to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Please take the lead of the people in front of you and gather the elements, and then we will take communion together in just a few minutes.